Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to this week's episode of Intersectionality. I am your host, Reverend Dr. Angela Raven Anderson. In this segment, we explore how our understanding of God and who God is calling us to be is informed at the intersection of race, gender, and religion. We examine how the combination of liberation, womanist, and egalitarian theology presents an understanding of God's kingdom that embraces, restores, uplifts, and transforms all who would enter therein. When we consider and learn from the wisdom gained in the lived experiences of women of color, our view of God's kingdom is stretched, contextualized, enriched, and expanded. Let's listen to their voices as they move us beyond the stained glass ceiling. Our guest today is Dr. Yolanda Pierce, who is a professor and dean of Howard University School of Divinity. She is a scholar of African-American religious history, womanist theology, race and religion, as well as a public theologian, activist, and commentator. Pierce served as the founding director of the Center for the Study of African-American Religious Life at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Her writing has appeared in Time, Sojourners, and The Christian Century, and she is author of the book, Hell Without Fires, as well as In My Grandmother's House, Black Women, Faith, and the Stories We Inherit. Let's welcome Dr. Yolanda Pierce. Dr. Pierce, how are you? Hello, how are you today? I am great. I'm great. I'm so excited to have you with us. How are you doing? Um, Well, I'm delighted to be here and just happy to be in the conversation. Great, great, great. Well, I know I just read your bio, but will you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? So I'm fairly boring, but what I can say (laughs) is that I am a church girl. I was born and raised to several generations of um, pastors and ministers and uh, church people. So I consider myself a certified church girl, but in my um, day-to-day life, I am just so happy to be a womanist theologian, to be a scholar, and for the past almost five years to serve as the Dean of the Howard University School of Divinity. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. You are the first woman in what, 150 year history of that? That is correct. That is correct. That's amazing. That is an amazing accomplishment. Well, today, um, as I mentioned, your book, In My Grandmother's House, has been one of my favorite books, uh, part of my summer reading. Awesome. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you for reading. (laughs) Oh, no, this is, it is, uh, I love it because um, in it, I, well, for one, I, I can just feel so connected to the stories that you tell in here, but I also feel like it really almost uh, encapsulates a lot that we talk about uh, on this broadcast when we are looking at how our stories uh, express 
the way that we have come to understand God mm-hmm. and the way that we understand who God wants us to be and how God wants us to show up in the world. Yes. Yeah. So I I want so today uh, we're we're gonna make a lot of references to this book. So uh, I hope you don't mind. <laughs> no, no, go right ahead. Okay, but to get us started though, I uh, what, that one of the areas of your scholarship is is around the uh, what we call in uh, the academic setting as practical theology. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners today, would you kind of give us a a, a level definition of what it means to be a practical theologian? So there are lots of fields and schools of theology. I'm a womanist theologian. Um, that that's, that's one of my identities. Um, and if you're a womanist theologian, you're often a public theologian, meaning that you do a lot of your academic work in settings outside of the academy. So I care very deeply about conversations that may have begun in the academy, but have implication for folks in the pews. Um, so when we look at practical theology, we're often contrasting it with what we call systematic theology. Right, right. It, it's just a way of saying systematic theology is often a very high level view of all of the various branches of theology from soteriology to eschatology, Christology, and the like. Practical theology often concerns itself, as the name suggests, with the practical matters of living into our faith. What we do on on a regular basis as we practice our faith, mm-hmm. as, as we live and we move and we, we have our being in God. And so the practical theology is often um, the day-to-day realities of what right. we believe and how we do that um, versus the more systematic theology, which is trying to be a cohesive worldview of how we put our theologies together. Okay, good. Because that's that is when we begin to think about, uh, particularly in this space. Um, I, I I think that's really where we're we're trying to land here is really kind of understanding uh, if 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 we say God is loving or God is compassionate, then how does that look on a daily basis, right? If we say that absolutely we have a absolutely. God who's all wise or a God who is creator, then what yes. does that mean? for us in our day-to-day spaces. Absolutely. I mean, we talk about in theology, and I mention it in my own work quite a bit, um, being made in the image and likeness of God, the Imago Dei, right? right? Mm -hmm. That's a theological concept um, that we are all, all of God's creations are made in God's image. But I'm concerned with what does that look like on the ground? So, So it's wonderful to have a theological concept which depends on God as creator. And so all of God's creations, a reflection of God. But on the ground, what does it look like, the Imago Dei? And so when I ask the question, what does it look like for Black women to be made in God's image, I'm asking a question that's grounded by context. We call it contextual theology, right? Mm -hmm. Or constructive theology, Mm -hmm. which is to say, if Black women are a reflection of the divine, then our experiences and who we are and how we understand God and how we move in the world is also a reflection of the divine. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then let's kind of move forward with that. if we're if we're thinking through um, those ideas of a Mago Day, because I that's one of those concepts that I feel is so grounding for us as individuals uh, around 
how we are to interact with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, uh, help me understand from your perspective, how, how does that guide us? How does that guide us as um, believers with each other, as well as believers and non-believers? How, how, how does understanding that every individual um, reflects the Imago Dei? So I think it helps us when we think about the Imago Dei, because then we really have to live into the biblical term of the least of these, Uh, the least of these, the most marginalized in any society, the most oppressed in any society, they are also made in the image and likeness of God. Mm -hmm. Someone of a different faith, of a different religion, uh, someone who has a completely different opinion, all of those folks are made in God's image as well. So Mm -hmm. the Imago Dei is how do we love our neighbors as ourselves? How do we see, there's a Quaker expression from the Quaker community, which is about the light of God that is in everyone. And so even if that person is a completely different religion, the light of God still exists in him or her. And so how will you treat the light of God? How will you treat the person who's a reflection of God? And so that that means we have to walk in love. We have to walk in care. We we really have to take seriously that the caring for the very least is what God has commanded us to do. That's good. That is really good. And I think when when we when we continue to think about our country, right, and the state of um, race relationships within this country, um, how how do you or do you let me put this a different way? Do you, do you believe that there is a way that understanding Imago Day can help us? begin to bridge the gap, particularly within the church, because um, I still believe, you know, we always talk about the 11 o'clock hours, the most segregated time in America. I still believe there's uh, so much um, separation within the church um, along racial lines. Yes. So um, the Imago Dei definitely helps us there. I think that for me, when I think about how this manifests itself in the church, I think about the ways in which white supremacy unfortunately devalues the other. So can we see in the eyes of that 14-year-old Black child, right, a reflection of God? And unfortunately, in our nation, sometimes the answer is no. And because of that, then we are more likely as a nation to treat that child as something other, as something not divinely made. And so this is why this is absolutely critical to have a sense of the divine and the holy that exists in every single person, because it would give us pause about the structural and systematic ways in which racism and white supremacy actually interrupts um, our right being with God, because we are not seeing that person as a reflection of God, right? And so this is critical in the church today. Um, we, We do think still that Sunday morning, 10, 11, or via Zoom these days is the most segregated hour, but we often don't ask that question of why. And I know that for many African-Americans, part of that why is because they are in fact looking for a place of safety and sanctuary and catharsis, having met six other days in the week 
all of these forces and powers and principalities which are diminishing of them, which are belittling to them. Um, and so then for many of us, our places of worship become a place of home and of safety when the rest of the world does not feel that way. Mm -hmm. So we can talk about the most segregated hour in America, but we also have to examine why that's the most segregated hour in America. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, okay. Let's talk about this hour a little bit more in, um, in, in, as we consider women within mm -hmm. the church. Um, and um, our ability to uh, find safety um, mm -hmm. in light of some of the recent reports on uh, trauma, sexual trauma that women experienced at the hands of um, those in authority, those pastors that are there. Uh, let, let's talk about the, the place of women in our worship and in our, in our religious settings. So for me as a person who grew up in the African-American church and the black church tradition, something like 85, 90% of the membership are women. So women and their labor and their tithes and their offerings actually keep the doors of the churches open. This, this is not an exaggeration. I mean, it sounds wonderful as a metaphor, but I am talking about the logistics of it all. If Black women were to stop tithing, stop giving, and stop going, um, the vast majority of our churches would shut down. Um, I say that simply to say that there is a power and agency for Black women in the church, um, but that seems to be in stark contrast to the fact that they are often not leaders. And I only use leaders to say those who are in senior leadership, the senior pastor, the person whose name is on the marquee. So for me, part of why I wrote this book was to really sit with the tension of that, to sit with the powerful Black women that I knew in these right. ecclesial settings who did not hold a title yet wielded a lot of authority. Right. And to think about the ways in which those, how those spaces of the church provided them with a home, but also provided them with conflict. Um, why weren't they allowed to be leaders? Why weren't their names or portraits in the narthex or in the vestibule of the church? Why do we do the, the church history by way of just the pastors? Uh, this is the first pastor, the second pastor, pastor number six. And those are often um, a spiritual lineage of male names. And so I'm trying to press that and really talk about how Black women have agency and authority, even if they are not, quote unquote, in power. And doing that by saying their stories have to receive attention, how they live and love and, and raise their families, how they came to know God, how they do, in fact, theology on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. In your book, you share that you grew up in, in something of a legalistic, definitely patriarchal yes, kind definitely. of tradition, as did I. And um, I, I find it very interesting. Uh, my father was an elder uh, in most of the, served as an elder in most of the congregations. But my mother, um, I would watch the women kind of work behind the scenes and through the men um, to, to get get things done. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. how I was just saying, mm -hmm. you know, to get things done that needed to, yes. to really get done. And I always, I always found that to be very interesting. Like mm -hmm. you said, that kind of living in that tension in those spaces, 
women who may uh, outside of the church have been in positions of uh, responsibility and leadership and authority, but within the yes. church, it was a very different dynamic. So I talk about the church mothers, the church and the denomination in which I grew up in. There is an office of uh, called a church mother. That is an actual um, like title. It's an actual office. We have church mothers, plural. We have a church mothers board. And oh, some wow. denominations okay. have this and, and um, some do not, but we had a church mothers board. And these were elder women of the church. Um, no one wants to be old anymore, but these were old older women. I can, I can definitely say that they were old when I was young. So um, <laughs> they were, you know, in their 70s and 80s mm -hmm. and, and had been blessed with a long life. Um, I use these church women, these church mothers as an example of how black women are often always navigating it. These church women really ran the church. And I understand that now as an adult, as a child, you just say, oh, whatever. But mm -hmm. um, as an adult, I now understand that they really ran the church, that mm -hmm. they really set the tone. They, they could shift the atmosphere with a look or, or a testimony or, or a song. Yes, and that there yes. was something so powerful about these older church women. And so I admire what I felt I saw them do, which yes. was really help to guide and nurture another generation of black church women. Even as I have to really honestly reflect on the kind of legalism and the patriarchy that they themselves embodied. And so it was both and, it was these amazingly strong and powerful church mothers who if they looked a certain way, everything could change, right? right. But also the legalism and the patriarchy that they knew um, that they continue to manifest in their own lives and that they taught us. And I think it is the responsibility of every person of faith to come to God for him or herself. And so I had to come to God for myself. And I am a product of those church mothers and that environment. And I also am a product of what I've read and what I've studied and the fact that I am now a theologian and all of those things can make you up and you can be sitting with the contradictions of all of those things. And God is still present there, even in the contradictions. Even in the contradictions. I love that. And so kind of take us a little bit through your own personal evolution. Um, so one of the things I describe in the book um, in terms of the legalism in which I was raised was always about how we were dressed as children or as mm -hmm. teenagers. And there was a lot of policing of the body. Your mm -hmm. skirt is too short or don't wear that or you can't wear that in the sanctuary of the church. And, you know, I remember being a 14, 15 year old, like, would they just leave me alone? Like, why are they? And, and it was always the women. I, I didn't mm -hmm. feel that policing coming from men or the elders, the male elders or the trustees or the deacons, they never said anything. They just really didn't bother us. But the church mothers, oh, they had a lot to say. And I talk about this one particular church mother who I felt like more than my own grandparents who raised me, anyone else I was related to, she was going to be the one, okay? Uh -huh, who was constantly uh -huh. like, oh, that skirt is too short, that skirt is tight. And I just I just remember thinking, I can't wait to leave here. Well, God has a sense of humor. And so right. I <laughs> go away to college, yes. And so I go away to college, like, oh, I'm done with that church stuff and look where I am today. But um, I mentioned that in particular because um, 
I think when I first got to college and then graduate school and I had a language to express it, I was like, oh yes, that's legalism, that's patriarchy, that's all of those things. And it was. But I also um, found in my own personal walk with God, a lot of grace. What that church mother, she and others like her were trying to do was to keep a generation of young women safe in a Mm -hmm. world that was filled with predators. And Mm -hmm. the predators are inside the church and predators are outside the church. Mm -hmm. And the tools that they had, um, the tools that this generation of black women, vast majority of whom were born in the rural South, experienced the great migration. The tools that they had was to tell us, don't wear this, don't do that, right? I probably have some more tools than that today, but I want to acknowledge the grace that I had to find because they loved me and they had my best interests at heart. And so even if I didn't understand them then, and even if I still disagree with them now, I want to be clear that they loved me and wanted me to survive and to thrive. And I am here, I say this emphatically, I am here as a result of my grandmother's prayers, as a result of these Mm -hmm. church mother's prayers, that my survival, my ability to go to graduate school and um, be the first in my family to go to college and to get a PhD and and now a dean and a full professor, all, all of that has everything to do with these elder women who prayed for me and anointed my head with oil and washed my feet and told me um, that God had something planned for me. So that's what I mean about the contradiction. I got to graduate school and I got to, you know, you get to theological education and you have words like, oh, legalism and whatever, patriarchy and, and all. But, and, and all of that is still true. Nothing, nothing is not true about that. But there is grace and that grace serves me well when I think about how much they loved me and were willing to sacrifice so that I could have the life that they weren't able to have. So, so let's think about this then in, 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 as we talk about practical theology, how, how do we move forward in the church today, being able to still, uh, what, what would you take from that to, to, to move us forward today? Uh, the good piece of that, as you were saying, the love, the care. <laughs> uh, yes, um, that, that's a good question. One of the things I often think helps us and I and we need to do more of is um, the storytelling and testimony tradition. Mm-hmm. We don't seem to have time for that anymore, but um, our churches are now, we're down to an hour. I think that this is part of what happened with Zoom is not only do people not want to actually sit in a building for a few hours, but they don't even, certainly don't want to sit on Zoom for more than an hour. So 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 we're quick, right? We, we are in and out well, um, as a kid growing up, we were at church all day. <laughs> now, I'm not recommending that. But what we did have um, for us on Wednesday nights or sometimes Friday nights were testimony services yes. and people shared their stories. So those stories are absolutely critical to helping us to understand and love one another. And that's yes. why that is my recommendation. We need to hear stories um, and testimonies from young people. I, I want to hear the, what the 15 year old has to say 
what she's going through, what are her questions, what are her doubts, right? And I want to hear the 75-year-old and, mm-hmm. and how she got over and how her soul looks back and wonder, right? Because they can learn from each other. Yeah. I'm still learning from the elders, but I'm also learning from the young people that I teach. Part of the joy of being in a college and university setting is that I'm constantly learning from younger people. And we don't have very many spaces of doing that anymore. The church was one of the few spaces where we would have both elders and kids gathered. Most of us don't have that in our lives outside of church. We have to make room for testimonies, for stories, for sharing, for questions, for doubts. Um, yes. As a kid, they kicked me out of the children's Sunday school because I had a lot of questions. So they sent me <laughs> over to the adult Sunday school. They're like, she has too many questions for us. But those adults loved me and, and they had time for my questions. Even the ones that they did not have answers to, they had time to listen. So I think how how we find time to hear one another mm-hmm. is absolutely critical across the generations. That That's the key for me. Where is our space across the generations to talk to one another? I love it. I love it. Yeah, that, I think that that is, that is so important. And in fact, in your, in the book, you talked about it, it, you know, it, I, well, the way, the way I, you know, thought about it was we often talk about uh, what God did back then, right? How mm-hmm. he brought the Israelites across the Red Sea and delivered them to the, you know, to, to yeah. the promised land. But I think for young people today, we need to know uh, what God is doing now. What What is this living God of ours doing? And yes. I loved how you said that um, as you listen to those testimonies, it was apparent that God was still at work. Yes, yes. That's what I love, that God is still moving. God is still revealing God's self. The the Holy Spirit is still at work. And that's why those living testimonies were very real for me. I love the biblical texts. It teaches us a lot. Most of the biblical texts are parables, their stories, their poems, right? So part of why I always encourage my own students to study the biblical languages is because you find out, oh, the book of Job is a poem, or you find out, oh, this is a letter. Oh, this is a story, right? So, so those stories are amazing, but our living stories, what it means to hear from someone who is going through what you are going through. When I tell students my own stories about, you know, being in college and dealing with financial aid and, and mm-hmm. how God right. miraculously made a way, that's because they understand financial aid, right? They understand, right? And they're living through that. So it isn't that we don't have the miraculous um, within the biblical text, that we do have it, but, but God is still doing what God does. Yeah. And so when we share those stories and testimonies, uh, growing up for me, it was hearing stories of healing. The elders would often talk about a God who healed. Mm -hmm. And so again, this was a generation who had been born during Jim and Jane Crow and a generation who knew what it was like to live in a community or a city in which the hospitals were segregated. So if there was not a black hospital, you may not have been able to go to a hospital. You may not have been able to access medical care. And so their belief in a God who can heal was a response to the racism and the white supremacy they saw all around them that God can heal. And so me hearing those stories growing up, like, wow, what do you mean? God's still healing. God God is still speaking. God is still moving in the world. God cares about every 
aspect of my life. I get excited about that, that God cares about what my hair looks like when I'm having a good hair day, a bad hair day. Okay. God, God cares about every aspect of my life from my health to my finances, to how I'm feeling, to my relationships with all of those around me. And when we tell those stories about a God who is still moving, still caring, still loving, still opening up doors, it encourages us in a significant way. Um, And so part of one of the things I suggest in the book is that we have to retell how we even talk about the great cloud of witnesses. Oh, yes. Yes. That great cloud of witnesses, that's Harriet Tubman. That's Sojourner Truth, right? That's the Margaret Garner and Frederick Douglass and the Nat Turner. We have a wonderful genealogy that the um, writer of Hebrews has provided us with this great cloud of witnesses, and and yes. and those are um, counted among the saints. But we have in our own a spiritual genealogy. And so uh, this is one of the exercises I often ask my students to do, to write out their spiritual genealogy. This is not about like your flesh and blood story, although that can include for many of them if their father or mother or whoever were in ministry, but, but who were the people who spiritually taught you? Um, what is in that genealogy of spirituality? And for many of them, they named those unnamed women. It was the Sunday school teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was the neighbor uh, down the street. So that spiritual genealogy is evidence of God, how God is still blessing us today. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. I love that. And I, and I like how you said, because you know, it's 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 interesting. Um, Dr. Gaffney was uh, on the broadcast, and uh, Dr. Williams, and we were talking about at different times this idea that of so many women are unnamed, right? Yes. But again, so for us, uh, as we talk about how do we change the narrative or move our traditions forward, giving those people names, giving voice to their stories and, and um, understanding their, uh, understanding them as theologians that poured into us and, and brought about our own spiritual uh, development and growth, I think is very important as we continue um, progressing forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, some ancestors names, we won't ever know. There are women in the Bible whose names we won't ever know, but the names we can, we need to name them frequently, (laughs) often, as often as we can to actually speak their names. That's great. That's great. In the book, uh, uh, you made a statement that I I thought was really uh, great. It says to be present in worship is to bring our full selves into the process. I want, there's two pieces of that I want to kind of explore with you. When you say to bring your full selves into the process, what, what do you mean by process? Mm-hmm. It, it means, worship. yeah, it means to bring both body and mind to worship. We don't need to 
leave our intellect at the door when we enter worship. When I enter into the sanctuary, my full self comes in. My intellect, my academic work, what I study, what I do, write and uh, teach, that that comes in the door with me. In addition, the, my, my history, my life as a Black woman, what it means to move in this world in the body that I've been given as a Black woman, that enters um, with me. My mind, my body, all of that comes with me. So what it means in practice is that I get to ask questions. I, I get to sit with doubt. I get to say- As part of worship. As part of worship. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't sit right with my spirit, it doesn't sit right with my spirit. If I have questions, I have questions, right? Mm -hmm. But it also means that I can enjoy bodily worship. It means I can clap my hands and, and I can raise my hands and I can enjoy the presence of being in worship. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love, um, uh, I travel quite a bit for work and I have a habit of sitting in the same pew at church. So if I am gone, the people who often sit around the same pew because they have the same habits right. um, with me might notice that I'm gone. So one Sunday after having traveled for maybe three or four weeks, I was in worship and the woman who often sits behind me, she comes and she gives me the biggest hug. And she says, I've been praying for you while you're gone. Mm. And, and that, that hug, that touch, that connection, right? That, mm -hmm. That's what it means to be fully present in worship. Mm -hmm. um, but I am called to preach or, or to teach. And then I bring the fullness of my intellect, what it means to be a theologian, a practicing theologian, what it means to have, you know, four degrees, what it means to be a professor and a dean. I bring that into my speaking and my preaching and my teaching. And guess what? The people can handle it. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. when I say to be fully present in worship, it's to show up with all of the pieces of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we always talk uh, talk about this whole idea of presence, even mm -hmm. even as a ministry, right? Yes, the ministry, ministry of presence, of presence. <laughs> and just um, like you said, bringing yourself into a situation and just allowing, uh, not not necessarily having to be so concerned about the words, but mm -hmm. um, the fact that you're available and uh, uh, creating space for hearts to connect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the ministry of being present. The, how do you walk with people through sorrow and, and grief? Mm -hmm. So within the field of theology, it's called theodicy, right? Where, where is God when people are suffering? Mm -hmm. And um, many theologians have spilled a lot of ink as we try to answer that question. Where's God when people are suffering? Whatever the answer to that question um, may be for you, we actually get to walk with people by showing up. We show up when people are hurting, when they're sick, when they're grieving, when people are dying. And so that ministry of being present is sometimes the most powerful thing that we can absolutely do. And I, and I still like, for me, I don't know, it was just the connection between your worship and this presence. I, I guess because so often when I'm thinking of worship, I'm thinking of God's presence, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, again, bringing my full self into that moment, my full mindfulness, my full, like you said, my intellect, my, my physicality, all mm -hmm. of that into that space. Um, and, and I love what you were saying about, you know, even in your absence, your, your, your pew partners, 
yes, uh, yes. Are acknowledging <laughs> your presence, right? That yes, your presence absolutely. is making a, a difference in the worship experience. Yes. We often talk about God's presence and, and clearly we can do nothing without God's presence, but our presence is important, how we show up. And in a world in which we are so distracted, right? we are multitasking, we are doing 10 things at once, we're driving, we're talking, we're sending, you know, um, voicemail mm-hmm. messages, right? That what it means to show up fully sometimes means just that I'm here and I'm focused on this moment, mm-hmm. this worship experience, the people who are here, because it's very easy to get there and you still have your phone or your Apple watch and you can still, right? And so how do we just pay attention to one another? If we can do that, then I think that's a reflection of how God pays attention to us, that God's presence is magnified when we are present with one another. Yeah, that's 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 so beautiful. And 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 like you said, I I think in our world, uh, well, I can say one thing, COVID, I I think, has helped us appreciate um, (laughs) physical presence with one another. Um, I miss people. Yes. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Definitely. Yes. It's it's just amazing. And and although so grateful for technology, for Zoom, that kind of bridge the gap during this time, but the ability to be, um, as they say, join heart to heart, right? In in Mm -hmm. a space uh, is uplifting and electrifying all on and and transformative all on its own right it is you know we we I think took that for granted until we had that period of time where we just could not be in the same place and as an educator you know there's a lot you can do online and there are people even who pursue degrees online but I can tell you that as an educator there is nothing like the face-to-face in the learning environment and so being with my students and in the classroom with them is really powerful. And I would say the same for church. You know, we all did everything that we needed to do, including offering communion online. That was always interesting as I was watching (laughs) different churches navigate what they should do with the elements and what they could do and what have you. And and that's fine. And, And we did that and we get to be creative and thank God for the technology. But there are so many scripture passages that talk about us gathering together, um, greeting one another with a holy kiss. That That's mm-hmm. about trust. That's about touch. That's about contact. That's about loving one another. Mm-hmm. And in my book, in one of the chapters, I talk about how difficult a world this is for Black women to love themselves. And so for me, that's showing up in person, being present is part of how we love ourselves in a world that is often hostile to us. Uh, explain a little bit more. T- talk about that a little bit more. I like so, that. Um, the outcomes of so many things in life for Black women are negative. Um, when I think about the maternal outcomes for African-American women, we are three times as likely to die in childbirth. Um, Our children, unfortunately, um, die at rates that would rival developing countries. Our socioeconomic indices in terms of our wealth, um, what, what we own, what we don't own, our incomes, 
all of that is so absolutely negative. And so if you look around you, you look at a world that has indicated that here's a group of people we don't love. And so I'm struck by that because I think that we have to learn to love ourselves and we have to learn to love each other in a world in which we are challenged by both racism and sexism sexism and a world in which we are challenged by both patriarchy and white supremacy. How do we love ourselves? How do we love our hair when literally black women have been fired for the hair that actually grows out of their head? How, How do we love our bodies when we are being told those bodies are not enough of this or too much of that, right? How do we love our, our skin? How do we love all of the aspects of who we are in a world that tells us we're not enough or not lovable or not beautiful enough, right? And so this is where it is so important back to the Imago Day for mm-hmm. us to have a sense of my hair, God made that. The, the color of my skin, God blessed me with that. The shape of my body, that's how God created me. Mm-hmm. And to love the things that the dominant culture would say are negative and to be able to rebut that with this is a vessel of God's choosing. We are vessels of the divine. And so we have to love one another, but we have to love ourselves in a world that often makes it very hard to do. Yeah, that's great. That is great. You know, one of the things that um, we've been talking about uh, a lot of in some of my circles is this idea of purpose Mm. and um, how uh, we define purpose um, and, and I know, you know, for young people always, you know, that's as they're trying to make their way in the world and understand um, how God calls them. But I found uh, the conversation, uh, I guess it may have been between you and your grandmother and you know, <laughs> or in the kitchen cooking. Yeah, there's and, a lot of cooking. <laughs> a lot of cooking. <laughs> and uh, I loved the way she reduces Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you shared that she said Jesus went around healing people, telling mm-hmm. stories, and feeding people. And she says, mm-hmm. as long as I'm, I'm feeding people, telling stories, I'm healing them, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I loved Absolutely. it. I loved it. Absolutely. Because it really kind of brought... Um, it kind of took a lot of the mystery out of what it is that God is calling us to do in this world. <laughs> you know, we make it more complicated than it has to be, right? Yeah. And so I, I loved her distillation because that is true to the gospels. We look through all of the pericopes in, in the gospel. Oh, Jesus healed the people. Oh, okay. Oh, Jesus feeding people again. People hungry. So Jesus healed the people again. Right? Just, just the basics of seeing to people's material needs and loving them that way, right? And, right? and there was always a story. There was always a parable, the rich man and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and, and so when we think about it that way, it means each of us have the capacity to walk as Jesus walked. Mm-hmm. That that it isn't some big grand mystery. How do I serve like Jesus served? Right? Well, are you feeding people? Are, are hungry people in your community being fed? 
people who need help getting the help that they need? Are you telling the stories and allowing others to tell you their stories? Are you in community with one another? And so I love that because for my grandmother who had no formal education, right? The premise of my entire book is what if the greatest theologian I have ever known was my grandmother, right? A woman with no formal training and yet who was able to teach me through the simplicity of the gospel, how to love God and to love God's people. And that's it. That's what we get to do. That Those are the greatest commandments, right, that we are to follow. We're to love God with all of our heart and, and we're lo- to love our neighbors as ourselves. And under all of that is all of the law, all of the other stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I've watched as these Black women in my church and neighborhood, they just loved on people. Y'all come mm-hmm. on in. I'm, you know, I'm making some biscuits. Okay. We're just going to feed everybody who walked at the door. You want to sweet potato pie? I'm like, okay. And just, but, but it was the loving and everyone knew that they were welcome. And so if we do some of that, then we're walking in our purpose, right? Whatever that particular vocation may be. And I do believe right. we're called to a vocation. I love being an educator. Um, but, but it is with love. It is to make sure that I'm meeting people's needs. And so whatever your vocation is, make sure that you're fulfilling God's purpose. Are you doing the very simple things that Jesus asked us to do? Um, and if we get a hold of that, then all of the other complicated things will fall into place. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I, I, I 100% agree with that. And that actually kind of just t- ties with um, my it's kind of the question I usually pose from our guests as we end the show. And, and that would be kind of as you reflect on your own life and, and again, those who have poured so much into you, what, what would you say your understanding of who God is and who God wants us to be? How does God want us to show up? I hope that God shows up as a loving grandmother, um, and, and I say that to say, as someone who is tender and gentle and kind, as somebody who give you biscuits and, and sweet tea, um, as somebody who cares whether or not you're, you're hungry or sad, um, as an all-embracing, all-encompassing, loving God. Um, I talk quite a bit in this book and in other books that I've written about my rejection of certain theological terms or ideas that do not serve me well. And I can only speak for myself. And um, the the militaristic language, Mm -hmm. that that does not serve me well. But I was raised with hymns. and, And so the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, echoes in my heart. Jesus as friend, Jesus who loves me, who walks with me, Jesus who extends a hand. Um, and, And so for me, that's who God is. God is that loving, compassionate friend. Um, God shows up in the tenderness um, of a grandmother's hug. God shows up in the laughter of sister friends sitting at a table with one another and just having a good time. Um, That God's ubiquitous presence is in the gentle and in the tender and in the loving and in the mercy and in the grace. And wherever I have found those things, that's where God usually is. Amen. Amen. 
Well, Dr. Pierce, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank um, you for having me. It's this, been a wonderful conversation. Oh my goodness. Yes. I wish we had much, much, much more time, but uh, again, uh, certainly appreciate you. And I just wanted to let our, our listeners know, again, the book that we've been referring to uh, today is called In My Grandmother's Kitchen, oh, nope, In My Grandmother's House, I always want to say kitchen, y'all, In My Grandmother's <laughs> House, Black Women, Faith, and the Stories We Inherit. And it's available um, pretty much everywhere you get a book, but uh, definitely on Amazon and any other online outlet. All of them, uh, Barnes and Noble, your independent bookstores, and I narrate the audiobook. And that was important to me because a lot of my um, elders uh, listen to books uh, rather than read them. And so there is an audio version, which I narrate. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today. Stay tuned for all of the brand new episodes coming to you weekly from our incredible team of co-hosts. In the meantime, go to the show notes and learn how you can follow and support uh, all of our podcast family. And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. You should also go to our website at www.cbeinternational.org for even more content. Subscribe to our blog, magazine, and academic journal. Watch videos and listen to audio of past conferences and events. And you should go visit our bookstore where you can find a ton of talented authors and subjects that will enrich in your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents in leadership and service to the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. I am Dr. Angela Raven Anderson. We would like to thank Landon, our support tech, and the entire team of CBE International that makes this podcast possible. We are Mutuality Matters. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.